0: Now, be honest. How many pumpkin spice lattes have you had so far this fall? Adashina Korki on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. This is episode number 14. And once again, we thank you so very much for joining us. It's October. It means Football, And it also means the fall classic. And the fall classic is set. The World Series in 2014 will pit the Kansas City Royals. Yes, the Kansas City Royals in the World Series for the first time in 29 years. They will take on the San Francisco Giants looking to win their third World Series in five years. It should be an amazing matchup. And you talk about the Royals and making it to the World Series, invoking memories of the 1985 team that won the World Series in seven games against the St. Louis Cardinals in the I-70 Series. And on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast on episode number 14, we talk with one of the key members of the 1985 Kansas City Royals championship winning team, starting pitcher Mark Gubiza, who is now on Fox Sports Net and Fox Sports West as color commentator on television for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. He stops by and talks with us about that magical run in 1985 for the Kansas City Royals, as well as the 1984 team that also made the playoffs and lost to the Detroit Tigers in the American League Championship Series, and how that 1984 season, in which Gubiza was a rookie, helped set up the 1985 season a year after and the Royals winning the World Series. So we talk with Mark Gubiza, a very interesting conversation we had about the 85 Royals and also talking about the 2014 Royals as well and his observation of the team that has yet to lose a game in the playoffs eight and oh, the Kansas City Royals in the playoffs. And also in this podcast, I mentioned that fall means football. We talk college football and we talk with one of our really good friends, Lisa Horn of pigskin grind.com, national college football writer. And she shares and explains that there really is no standout number one team in her mind so far, halfway through this college football season. So we talk about the halfway point of the college football season, what to expect in the second half of the college football season, and a very interesting take that she has on the situations involving Todd Gurley and Jameis Winston right now, in the autographs, scandals going on with both Georgia and Florida State, and with their two star players, and how both The University of Georgia and Florida State University are handling these situations. So a very in-depth conversation about college football with Lisa Horn. That is our second interview, our first interview coming up in a few seconds with Mark Gubiza of Fox Sports West and a member of the 1985 Kansas City Royals championship team. So sit back, relax, take a sip of that pumpkin spice latte and enjoy episode number 14 on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Mark Goob is the first, then Lisa Horn talking college football. We will see you at the end of the show. In Kansas City, they are partying like it's 1985, and the main reason being the Kansas City Royals. Off to the playoffs for the first time in 29 years, and off to the World Series for the first time in 29 years. That after sweeping the Baltimore Orioles in the league championship series in the American League, four games to nothing. That coming after uh, sweeping the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim in the division series, and the run in the playoffs starting with the come-from-behind Card round win against the Oakland Athletics. And some comparisons are being made of this 2014 Kansas City Royals team to the team that won the Fall Classic in 1985, and one of those comparisons being pitching from the very beginning, good starting pitching to the very end with a great bullpen. And joining us right now and pleased to be joined on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, Mark Gubazov, FSN West Fox Sports Net in California, the color commentator for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim and a member of the 1985 Kansas city royals championship team as a starting pitcher first of all mark thank you so very much for joining us uh, how are you doing today
1: i'm doing great this is a uh, fun time of the i'll tell you what the playoffs even though some of the sh- series have been shorter than than some people might like every one of these games were so dramatic and so many close one run games comebacks, games won at the end walk-off wins uh, it's been a lot of fun
0: Well, my first question to you after how are you doing is how do you balance the emotions that you had with the team that you work for the Los Angeles Angels losing in the uh, divisional playoff round after such a great season with the team that you grew up with as a player, at least the Kansas City Royals beating the Angels and going to the World Series. How do you balance uh, those two emotions that you must be going through right now?
1: I'll tell you what, it was, it was tough. There was so many different times I was asked that question, who you're rooting for, where's your uh, your World Series ring, are you wearing it now, all these other things. Uh, you know, all I kept saying, and I, and I felt this way all the way through, that, you know, coming into that series, you know, after Kansas City beat Oakland, and, and the Angels played the A's so often, and they finally found a way to be able to beat the Oakland A's towards the end of the season. They they were banged up. They weren't swinging the bats as well. You know, Cespedes was moved over for John Lesser, so the lineup wasn't as deep. But when the, when the Royals came back and won that game after being down by four late against Oakland and John Lester, that uh, I knew it was going to be a tough series. I anticipated it being a five game series, and I thought because the Angels had the best record in baseball, having home field advantage, that would be the huge difference between you know the Royals and, and the Angels. But you know you got to play the game, and twice you have an opportunity in, in, in extra innings to win at home. Kansas City just certainly believes in itself and they make so many great defensive plays pitch well like you said that uh, they were able to win that series so it was tough for me you know knowing the majority of my life I was wearing that Kansas City Royal Blue uniform and it was good to see them play so well but also you know I've been working for the Angels for such a long period of time that uh, it was difficult because I have so many friends on this current team as compared to not really knowing a whole lot of guys on the current team over at Kansas City was kind of It was a tough one for me.
0: You mentioned not only the Royals winning that wild card round against Oakland, but in the manner that they did win it, the comeback off of uh, John Lester in the eighth inning and winning it in extra innings. Did you think that the way that the Royals won that game against Oakland changed a little bit of that series against the Angels in terms of emotions? If the Royals had won that game against Oakland comfortably, do you think somehow the Royals-Angels series might have taken a different tenor? Yeah,
1: I think the way they won it because they won with so many. What they have seven stolen bases in that game against Oakland, and then you can sense right away that that was the conversation. The question asked to Mike Socia right away: How are you going to slow down that Kansas City Royal running game? Now, whether it's stealing bases or you know being aggressive going first to third or bunting and doing all these little things to create opportunities to score runs that Kansas City does so well, and it goes against the grain when you when you think about teams like Oakland, you know, or even teams like Tampa or. Or even teams before, like Boston, they didn't run a whole lot. They relied mainly on be able to not be willing to give up and out, whether it's a bunt or or potentially getting somebody thrown out trying to steal a base. The Kansas City went back to the old school ways of baseball, and and it kind of uh, it put the Angels on the, the defensive, I think, because they all of a sudden you have pitchers trying to be quicker to the plate. You have guys, you know, throwing probably more fastballs than they would normally throw. I mean, because you don't want to throw a lot of change-ups and curveballs and sliders in, in counts where you just feel that your opponent's going to try to steal a base, and that's what Kansas City thrives on is, is working the count and being in the position where they can steal some bases and get themselves into scoring position, in scoring position and somehow scratch a run across.
0: Once again, Mark Gubiza joining us, Fox Sports Net, Fox Sports West, uh, color commentator for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. You saw the Royals, the 2014 edition of the Kansas City Royals in late May in Anaheim and then in late June uh, in Kansas City. Did you get a sense after either the May series or in the June series in Kansas City that this Royals team could possibly be a team that could make a run uh, towards a postseason bid and or make a run to the World Series and what difference? Did you pick up between the last time you saw the Royals in June, and then going to the division series? So did you think?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you what. I I didn't. You know, I didn't really know what what to expect from them, to be honest with you. Because you know, we went in there in June. I think they were maybe one game over 500. I don't know if they were 49 to 40. I think that seems to be the right number as far as their win loss record. And, And Ned Yost was under a lot of pressure there. Their manager, and they just weren't playing well. Their offense wasn't scoring enough runs. Their pitching was fine. Their defense, even though we saw it on display so far in the postseason, percent fielding percentage wise, they were down towards the bottom, which is was highly unusual for that Kansas City club at that particular point. Then they had some good series against Detroit, and then they started to take off at that point. I think a lot of key games in the month of September, in which they closed the gap and. Looked like at one point or another they were going to actually going to not only make a the playoffs, they were going to you know win that division, the AL Central. I think things just started clicking in for them where they just felt that you know we don't have to go out and try to score a bunch of runs. That's their, their mantra was as long as we score enough runs to get to those three dominant pitchers. Almost like the Nasty Boys back in '90 for Cincinnati when when they had a lead it was over, and I think that's what you see with Herrera, Davis, and Holland right now. Anytime Kansas City has a lead. After six, or even to the Angels for that matter, back in 2002 when they had Frankie Rodriguez and you had Percy and you, had, you know Brendan Donnelly. Those guys never gave up any runs once they got the lead after six innings. So I think that's what they said to the pitchers at that point. This is give me five or six innings and then crash claw a couple runs across and there's no doubt in our minds we're going to win and I think they've kept that same mantra all the way through the postseason.
0: Uh, speaking of the Nasty Boys, one of the members of the 1990 Reds pitching staff was a teammate of yours in uh, 1985 in uh, Danny Jackson and I do want to mention and talk about now the uh, 1985 Kansas City Royals, a Team that you were on uh, as A starting pitcher this was a Royals franchise That maybe not of our listeners Not a lot of our listeners may remember Because they may be too young I'm not So I'm dating (laughs) myself Um, This was one of the Premier teams in the American League Uh, Late 70s had those Battles with the uh, New York Yankees 1980 making the World Series And you come up in 1984 and there's a really Young pitching staff yourself And Brett Saberhagen Danny Jackson's a very Uh, young pitcher was a very young pitcher at the time how were your nerves and was there that much pressure on you guys delivering given the fact that a lot of the everyday players were part of teams uh that went to the world series that went to the american league championship series it was uh, veteran everyday players but a very young pitching staff so were there any nerves any pressure in 83
1: 84 85 i think it really it really helped out because george brett that year you know he took Brett Sabre and myself under his wing let us live in his place out there in Kansas City for the first few weeks of the 84 season. Actually found us a condominium for us to, to live in as the season progressed after our lease ran out during the, off, during the regular season. We went back there during the postseason, which we eventually didn't last that long against the, Detroit that year, but we gained a lot of experience. You know, we were able to be around people like Paul Splidorff, initially, and then Dennis Leonard, who was rehabbing his knee, and, and then having Dan Quisenberry around, and even Larry Gore, for that matter. So we had some veterans around us, but when you think about it, a team that, that won the World Series in 85, Sabre Hagen was 21, I was 22, Danny Jackson was 23, Bud Black and Charlie Liebrand were you know, the so-called veterans, they were you know, 26, 27 range, but not a lot of major league experience, but we all learned from each other, we competed against each other, similar to what you saw with Atlanta, with all those real good pitchers, with Smoltzy, and Maddox and Glavin and Avery and, and, and Millwood and all those guys over the years, when you have young guys that hang together, play golf together, compete every day, no matter what it would be, a game of cards or on the golf course, whatever it was, we were always competing in a good way when we took the man on. And I think that helped all of us get better because we all knew we were going to make mistakes. We're all young, but we were all going to figure out things. We had quizbury to be able to close it out for us, which really helped us out. But being around George and, and of course, Al McRae and, and Frank White, who was invaluable just to be around, because they made you feel comfortable. Because in that era, when you were a young player, veterans really didn't, didn't talk to you a whole lot. You know, you were told to carry their luggage around, do this, do that for them. But these guys made you feel like you were one of them right away, and I think that was really important. I think that's part of the royal family at that point from the mid-'70s all the way up to when we made it up there in 84, was it was always a family atmosphere. We had a great group of uh, people running the club. Ewing Kaufman was our owner. You know, we had Joe Burke, who was our uh, president, and then John Shirold, who was our general manager, so they, they preached that family atmosphere, and, and it, I, I went from the major league level all the way down to rookie ball in the minor leagues, and I think that helped out with the transition to the major leagues.
0: Uh, you talked about the 1984 season. A lot of that was in 1984 when you went to the playoffs and ran into uh, one of the greatest teams in the past maybe 50 years, the uh, 84 Tigers, uh, in the American League Championship Series, and they eventually won the World Series. The next season in 1985, and everyone remembers Game 6 of the World Series, the uh, Don Denkinger uh, call and that game in Game 6 against uh, St. Louis in the World Series. But I do want to talk to you a little bit more about the American League Championship Series Because that's a series that not a lot of people remember This Kansas City Royals team in 2014 Hasn't lost a game yet in the postseason Your team had to come back from 3-1 series deficits In both the ALCS and the World Series And I want to talk about that Toronto series In the uh, American League Championship Series You lose the first two games in Toronto Win Game 3 And then there's Game 4 Where I believe in the ninth inning the Royals are up one nothing. Charlie Leibrandt, great game. Starts the ninth, allows a couple of base runners and a run, and then Dan Quisenberry comes in and he allowed a couple of hits, I believe, and allowed a run. And the Royals, uh, the Blue Jays, won it in the ninth. How much of a gut punch was it going down three one in that series to a team who I believe won 99 games that year in the Blue Jays?
1: Yeah, we we really thought you know going into that series we were going to have to play flawless baseball, and if we had a lead, we were going to have to try to maintain a lead. Talent-wise, as much as we'd like to believe we were as talented as this Toronto, there's on paper, there was no doubt they were arguably the most talented team in, in all of baseball that season. They had so much ability, so much athletic ability in their outfield. They had power. They could run. They had Dave Steeb as far as their, their ace of their staff. So they had so much going for them. And then falling behind three games to one the first year that they actually went to a, a, that seven-game format because the year before it was a five-game series. That's when we got swept by – Detroit in three games. It was uh, without that we wouldn't be talking about winning the World Series. Uh, you know, but this uh, being able to come back and knowing and Danny Jackson even and, and Charlie Leibrandt were unbelievable to not only in, in the playoff set here against Toronto but in, in the World Series. But you know, Charlie's a guy that pitched so well every single game, but so many odd things went against him late where he would have been. 4 or 5 0 oh, as far as a record. Instead, he was, uh, he barely got his only win of the, of the postseason that year coming in relief in Game 7 up in Toronto. But we felt we had a chance. George Brett really went nuts in Game 5, as I recall. I think he had a couple home runs. It might have been off a of Doyle Alexander and a double. And he just, at that point, we all of a sudden, even though we had to go back to Toronto to win those last two to advance to the World Series, we felt pretty good. And I'll never forget because Dick Houser, after we won Game 5, pulls me in the office, he goes, hey, by the way, kid, you're uh, you're starting game six. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea I was doing that, and right away, George heard that, Brett, and he goes, hey, wor- worst case scenario is we're out on the golf course the next day. Best case scenario, we've got a game seven and we can go to the World Series, so just have fun, kid, and have us, you know, do whatever you can to help us win a game. And I remember just thinking, wow, that was pretty cool that he said that, and all of a sudden I'm starting to chew my fingernails thinking, hey, I'm, I could be the guy that's, that's going to lose this game six and we're going home, and you just never know. When you're ever getting back to the postseason and looking back now, the Royals have never got back to the postseason since that 85 team. So, uh, you gotta win when you get those opportunities and sometimes you let little things go against you and you end up losing and you never get back there again.
0: That game six against the Blue Jays, it was back in Toronto, and a couple of things people may lose sight of. A, Bobby Cox is coaching the uh, Toronto Blue Jays team, one of the new enshrinees to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And two, Toronto played outdoors in uh, 1985 at Exhibition Stadium. How were you with your nerves going into that game six, not only given the fact that if your team loses and you're on the mound, the season's over. But uh, being in Toronto in May and June and July, it's probably a very nice time of the year. But in October, it's probably nice, but it was probably cold uh, that uh, night, right?
1: Oh, uh, it was freezing. I remember, I think it might have been, I might be off a degree or two, but I, I remember it being about a high of, like, 35 or so oh, during wow. the day. And it was it was freezing. But everyone, the position players would always tell you the same thing that uh, – you know, you're always at the advantage when you when you're a pitcher because hitters just don't like to deal with, you know, especially when you're throwing pretty fast on the mound and and, and you jam a hitter. You know, you have you, that bat feels like somebody there's a bunch of bees just gnawing at your your hands and your fingertips. So they, everyone always believes that's you know the advantage pitcher, but I also found it difficult to, be able to get a grip of, of the baseball itself because it was so cold. But uh, you know, we knew that if we played one of those games and. You know, Bud Black followed me up, who had been a starter all year, and, and that, and that what that enabled us to do. So I was right hand, you go with Blackie, with a left handed pitcher, then you come in with Dan Quizbury right. So it enabled Dick Houser to maneuver and then force Bobby Cox to make some changes, because he used a lot of platoon players back in those days for Toronto. And until this day, every time I run into Bobby Cox, he always shakes his head, he goes, I, I still can't believe you guys beat us. So he remembers it vividly how we came back against those guys in Toronto, But he also, you know, was two great managers going at it. And knowing that Toronto played a lot of platoon-type players, we had pretty much an everyday lineup. didn't matter if you were left or right, the same guys pretty much were going to play. But Toronto was a guy, you know, they had third-base platoon and other position, catching position was a platoon position, first base on occasion. So you you had chances. And then when you forced them to switch around, you know, we were able to score enough runs. And even in Game 7, it wasn't an easy game, it wasn't... A windblown double off the top of that, you know, chain link fence at Exhibition Stadium that drove in three by, you know, Jim Sumberg Did we actually realize, hey, we're going to the World Series?
0: Uh, your family was in Toronto, or some members of your family were in Toronto before that game six, or during that game six? Am I right? Yeah, my
1: yeah, my dad came up, and my uncle and and, and another one of my coaches in, in American Legion baseball from Philadelphia. You know, at that point they said they wanted to go up there, and I said I thought it'd be a great thrill for them and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm finding out and I'm pitching game six. But at that point, I, they're all in my room. So then we have, you know, you have three guy, men that are, you know, probably what were they, they're in their mid-50s or so, and they're snoring away. I'm trying to think in terms of how am I going to get to sleep with three guys snoring as loud as <laughs> some grizzly bears might be doing in, in the middle of the woods and still try to stay focused for the game. But the, with the one thing I always remembered, Early on, and I was always a guy that talked to you know when I saw somebody like a Don Drysdale or Tom Seaver or Jim Palmer, I always picked their brain as much as possible. And I remember going up to Tom Seaver about just about pitching in general and that other stuff. And he said the most important thing for a starting pitcher is sleep the night before the night before the game because he know the night before your game you're you're going to have in your mind how you're going to get the hitters out, so you're not going to sleep well. You're going to be you're going to be restless. But so the night before that was so important. And I remember again, great the night before the night before and then that game when my dad and my uncle and, and, and my uh, old coach were all snoring away in my hotel room I was still okay because I had enough sleep the night before and the adrenaline was going to go I was young that uh, I knew what my game plan was going to be I was just going to know that I had some guys behind me I was just going to try to throw as hard as I could and be as consistent as I could be because I thought I, I in our mind once we won game five that we had to do. We had an opportunity to do something special and come back. And at that point, nobody has done that. Certainly, no one ever had done, gone and come back three games, one and two consecutive series like we did, and be part of that team and that magical run we had it was pretty special.
0: Uh, I do one last question about the uh, American League Championship Series in '85. Uh, I remember watching Dave Steve a little bit past the 1985 season, late uh, later into his career, having, I think, three or four near no-hitters, one-hitters, and finally uh, having a no-hitter. Uh, in person, how good was Dave Steeb?
1: Oh, he, he was he was unbelievable. When you think about it, he was a position player before he turned into a pitcher. I mean, he was guy in a guy in the minor leagues with Toronto as a position player, and he turned into a pitcher, and his, his slider, we used to joke and laugh at it, because his pitchers You know, you always love to see a guy on the other side throwing the way they could throw. And he had that Frisbee slider. He was an unbelievable competitor. He would pitch inside extremely well. He didn't like anybody even fouling a baseball off him, let alone give up a hit. So you always loved the way he went out and competed. But, you you know, like anybody who throws enough sliders during the course of the game... It could be the best pitch, but it also could be one of those pitches that could be hit when it's a mistake made with. And we were able to capitalize against that a couple of times. But for the most part throughout my career, watching him pitch against us, we didn't do a whole lot of hitting against him. But uh, like I said, he was one of the fun, fun guys to watch to go out there and compete because he competed every pitch he threw from the first all the way up until when he was done in the game.
0: Once again, Mark Gubiza of FSN West and a member of the 1985 Kansas City Royals World Championship team joining us. And I will talk a little bit about uh, that World Series, the uh, Show Me State Series with the Cardinals uh, and the uh, Kansas City Royals in your mind. And again, it was a 3-1 comeback that you guys had to perform and completed. Most uh, fans will point to the George Orta ground ball and the call by Don Denkinger at first base. Uh, what? do you think was the turning point in that series in coming back and winning the final three games against the Cardinals?
1: Yeah, before we get to that game six, I remember, you know, when we were in uh, in St. Louis when we fell behind again three games to one. And, and again, going back to having that veteran leadership, George Brown, we walk into the clubhouse after losing that game four. So then we're down three games to one again, figuring we already ran out of luck coming back <laughs> in one series. But he literally walked in the clubhouse, and the first thing he says, hey, we got him right where we want him. I guarantee you we win this series. And I remember looking at him, I like, geez, I know it was Anheuser-Busch at that point, and there was a, a lot of Budweiser around the stadium. I was like, man, is he already hitting, hitting up the Budweiser at that point? But he literally just walked off the field. And then we looked at each other as, as all these young players and veterans around him. It, that's all he said. He sat in his locker, took off his shoes, and started getting ready to know that we were going back to You know, Kansas City at that point, and I'm like, and, you know, if we win that game five, that uh, the next day, that he, he was like, he was serious, and then all of a sudden, we're like, you know what, he believes it, so why shouldn't we believe it, and then at that point, we are able to, you know, work our way back in the series, in, the, in that game six, and I mean, there was were so many things that played into that game, I know Don Decatur still gets a lot of grief, from a, a number of people, including Whitey Herzog, who used to wear that royal uniform as a manager for a number of years, successful years. But uh, there was a pop-up right by our dugout where Jack Clark was unable to make the play. Ball
0: ball.
1: yeah, you're right. And then I even tell. And Vince Coleman eventually became a Kansas City Royal down the road. He was still still angry about that. And, you know, he was the one that got hurt by the you know the tarp and ran over his foot or whatever that was before he got to the World Series. But I said, remember one thing though. When we won that game, there was still only one out, so you can't assume, even if George is called out, that somebody else wasn't going to get hit down, get a hit down the road either, because that's the, the type of team we had. We were just magical. We just didn't feel we were going to lose a game. Even though we might not have been the most talented team, we knew we weren't going to make many mistakes in the mound. We knew we certainly weren't going to make any mistakes in the field. That's, you know, and we had enough guys in our lineup that were just guys that just battled each at bat that you would always have a chance so we we felt all along that whether people say we won it because of a blown call or not we still had one more out in the bank regardless of what the, the outcome was going to be
0: of course game 6 was such a nail biter. Game 7 was 11 to nothing and it was pretty much done uh, after the third inning. Uh a lot of championship games and championship deciding games are down to the wire. There's no really time to breathe until the game is over. Uh what was your perspective of game 7 knowing that uh by inning 3 it was 5 to nothing by Inning five, it was eleven to nothing. So, how was it like knowing us? not necessarily knowing, but having a good feeling that four or five innings in this championship is yours.
1: Yeah, I remember being down in the bullpen and, and the bullpen mounds, and 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 the things were set up differently than what it is right now in Kansas City. But we knew we were. I remember being with Steve Farr down there, who won a game also in the ALCS against Toronto. We were climbing the fence, thinking. What's going to be the quickest way to run out on the field once that last out is made? Because you can feel it. The anticipation was going to be there that we're going to win this thing. I can't believe we came back twice. And, you know, everyone was counting us out. No one really gave us a chance. We were actually, before we even got to the postseason, we we were down significantly in our division. I mean, we had to play the California Angels eight times in the month of September. We won seven of eight. So, when you think about the it, it's a six game swing. We only won in that division that year by one game. So, if we played bad against them, we, we're not even in the postseason. But the anticipation and, and the excitement that we, we were feeling in the crowd that night, you just couldn't wait to run out in the field. And I remember running out there, and to this day, I still have no idea where my hat is. Somebody ran out on the field and took my hat right <laughs> off my head. I still, to this day, I have no idea where my hat is from that World Series team. <laughs> It's going somewhere. They probably threw it away for all I, for all I know, but it, it's somewhere. I hope it's not in the trash or somewhere in some, you know, uh, you know landfill by now, but hopefully somebody is, has enjoyed it because it's somewhere out there in Kansas City, somewhere, somehow, and hopefully somebody's enjoying it at least.
0: Have you checked eBay or Amazon? <laughs> I probably should do it right
1: now, especially after 29 years. All this stuff is finding its way back to uh, Kansas City. I saw that one story about somebody had some banner or something they stole from and then they brought it back and they were from Wisconsin or something crazy. So somewhere out there, my hat is, is around for the <laughs> World Series team. I don't know where it is, but uh, I've explored and tried to figure out where it was, and I still have no idea. Uh,
0: Mark Gubas is joining us, and hopefully the uh, search for Mark Gubas' Game 7 hat uh, yields a positive result. Uh, we really do mean that. Uh, as uh, you born in Philadelphia, uh, you're in the East Coast, you end up in Kansas City. You're there for, I believe, 13 years. Uh, describe your time in Kansas City and describe Kansas City, the city. It must have been just an amazing city uh, to be a part in and to be an athlete in Kansas City, Missouri.
1: Oh, Phenomenal. The crazy thing behind it all was I was at the game in Game 6 in Philadelphia when the Royals played the Phillies. I was at, a, at the Veterans Stadium right behind the dugout when, when that ball popped out of Bob Boone's glove and the Pete Rose's glove because Ruben Amaro Sr., was the first base coach and Ruben Amara Junior and and David Amaro were both classmates of mine at the high school I went in Philadelphia. So they got myself and my dad two tickets for that game. So I mean that was magical. Then the the crazy thing behind then the very next year, that June, you know, all I'm hoping for is to be drafted by the Phillies and lo and behold I'm drafted by the team I was rooting so hard against that year before in the World Series, the Kansas City Royals, but as soon as I realized and put that hat on that that team won every single year, the Royals. And and Go into a city that that expects teams to win, and an organization that modeled themselves really a lot after what you saw from the Los Angeles Dodgers. From even the way the uniforms looked to the way they built their team in their farm system, and they were they were frugal with their money. But they also, you know, with Ewing Kaufman, was always wanting to keep whoever wore that royal uniform and wanted to stay there. You were going to stay there, and as long as you wanted to play your career there in Kansas City, was going to find a way to do that. And, you know, the fans were great. Uh, we used to draw, you know, no, nowhere did we ever f- draw less than 30,000 a game. We were about 2.4 million people almost every single season there for a long period of time. Uh, just a great place to play. The people were unbelievable. And I even told a story just the other day when I was watching that wild card game against Oakland. Uh, you know, I was watching it with my wife and my kids, and I'm looking. I said, I know these, this person. I know this person. I know this person. And they ask me right back, well, what's their name? I'm like, I don't know their name, but I think I know them because they feel like they're the same people that were at our games back in the day. They were such a friendly group of people that you felt they were family. And you know, I think that's the best way to describe the fans there in Kansas City. You just feel like they're part of your family because they really want you to do well. You want to do well for them, and that, that, that's part of it, too. But they just they, they wanted to be there for you and with you. And then I think that's the reason why so many people that have played there, a lot of guys, have stayed there and end up living there the rest of their lives. And uh, it's such a great place to play. The stadium is phenomenal. Travel, for one thing, now that I'm out here on the West Coast and and played my last year with the Angels and now travel with the Angels, it's a lot more difficult when you're on the West Coast traveling as compared to the Midwest where everything's so close by, and I think it's certainly an advantage for them.
0: Uh, back to 2014, the Royals now playing the San Francisco Giants, who just wrapped up the NLCS, uh, beating the uh, St. Louis Cardinals in five games. Did a part of you wish that the Cardinals came back, won that series, and set up another I seventy series almost 30 years after the first I seventy series? Uh, I
1: mean, I, I love the way the Cardinals draft and develop players, and 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 the fans there there in St. Louis are phenomenal too. But it would have been odd. I mean, for for Kansas City not to be in, in a playoff atmosphere in 29 years to go back and, and rehash the same <laughs> World Series team once again. That that part would have been cool. But also, I, I, I kind of like the fact is that's part of the Royals' history now. Beating the Cardinals in the World Series now, it's up to see if they can make history uh, against the Giants. And I, and I love what they're saying. It's, it's it's you know, dynasty versus destiny right now. I, I love that's the mantra they're saying about because you got you know, a dynasty in the making, certainly it will be their third world championship in five years for the Giants versus the team that, you know, it seems to be their destiny this year to just win every single game. And it's not the prettiest baseball. Both teams are not winning games the prettiest way, but they're winning games. And then it's, it's fun to watch these guys going out there compete. I think this, this has a legit chance of being an unbelievable world series. Now it could be four games. It could be seven, but all four, all, all seven are going to be phenomenal.
0: So, uh, are you leaning towards Dynasty or Destiny going into the
1: uh, World series? Destiny. Destiny. I you know, I grew up a National League guy, but I've been an American League guy for a long, long time. So I pull for him in the in the All Star game, and I pull for him in the World Series. And, and because I wore that blue uniform for a long time well, too,
0: absolutely right. Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah. yes, you bleed uh, world blue as well. Uh, Mark Gubiza of FSN West, Los Angeles Angels broadcaster and color commentator, and World Series champion with the Kansas City Royals in 1985. It has been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, thank you so very much for joining us, and we hope to uh, catch up with you down the road.
1: Anytime, man. This has been awesome, man. A lot of guys, you're pretty good as far as remembering all this stuff, too. Oh. I'm, I'm impressed.
0: Again, I'm dating myself. <laughs> 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 no, no, I-, I, was, I always joke around. Right? I said I was only 10 years
1: old back there in the World Series in 85. They allowed young kids to be able to play at that point.
0: <laughs> Mark, it has been such a pleasure. We definitely will catch up with you down the road. Uh, thank you so much for your time once again.
1: You got it anytime. Anytime.
0: We are getting ready to begin the second half of the 2014 college football season. Most of the college football teams have played half of their games, and what a half season it has already been. A lot of great performances, upsets, and more upsets, and we can only imagine what the second half is going to be in store. A lot of these players are really grinding on the pigskin, and joining us right now is the person who grinds on pigskin more than anybody else because she works for pigskingrind.com, National college football writer lisa horn joining us we can't talk college football extensively without talking to you so we thank you so very much for joining us and you had you spent uh you spent some time with some uh, lds elders is that true right before this interview yeah, the word's
2: out in South Orange County that if you want to watch a football game and you you know you've been walking all day ringing doorbells and you can come over to our house. I mean, and, and we're not even LDS, but the word is out. The door's open. I'll give you some lemonade and cookies, and you can watch a uh, football. And
0: it, yeah, it's it's pretty funny. I, I, every week it seems like there's a new guy coming through here. Uh, go to the Horns house if you are LDS or not LDS and you get lemonade and cookies and right. you'll be able to talk college football with a college football writer. So South Orange County, if you're listening, all right, the Horns is the place, uh, to be for nice people. Okay. I'm not inviting every single person. You have to be nice to go to the Horns household. Um, our top 25 on a lot of sports com uh, this week, our opening monologue is, Progress reports, mid-season grades, and we handed out mid-season grades to each of the 10 conferences in uh, Division One in the FBS outside of the Independents. And we were pretty tough on the grading. Um, during this half of the season, is there any team or any league that Professor Horn would give high marks or A's to after the first half of the season?
2: Uh, are you a, you know, are you a harsh what? grader?
0: I am cars? a harsh grader. Okay. I'm not
2: impressed with anyone right now, hmm. and maybe that's because there's a lot more parity in the league. Or, and you know, I hate to use that general term, parity. It could be that there's just a lot of really good teams in a league. But I, I mean, I look at the SEC, and you know, continually I see all these teams ranked really high. I mean. I I look at Mississippi State and at number one and Ole Miss at number three and it's like were the were the where the pollsters really just okay, well, you know, Auburn lost and Georgia's lost and Alabama's lost. So we'll just we'll just go ahead and you know, go ahead and rank the, the undefeated left in the SEC. The problem for me is that I think the SEC is down. The East is very down. I mean come on, Missouri lost to Indiana. And the West, Alabama doesn't I mean it doesn't pass the eyeball test for me. Ole Miss it looks like Ole Miss, I mean, their signature win is against an Alabama team that I didn't think was very impressive, has not been impressive. And they did beat um, Texas A&M, but you know what? Mississippi State beat A&M a- M- already. That's, uh, so to me, I think there's a lot of people confused. This is why, you know what, Addie, this is why I think the, rate, the rankings shouldn't even come out mm-hmm.
0: until like another week. I know you have some nits to pick in the uh, college football rankings, at least in the AP poll. Uh, it sounds as if you really don't know who the number one team in the country is right now. Do, do, who's your number one team, or are you just waiting until the end of October to figure that out? You know what? There are a couple of teams
2: that I really think look really good. One of them is Oregon, and I know they have a loss. I still think Oregon looks really good. I was really high in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma lost to a really good TCU team. I loved Michigan State. I think Michigan State is the most complete team in the country. Michigan State's always had like an issue at quarterback, and I think with Connor Cook it kind of balances out. Great defense with a pretty decent offense. So my big issues with the AP are that number 12, TCU, is behind number 11, Oklahoma, when TCU beat Oklahoma, and number 8, Michigan State, is ahead of number 9, Oregon, and Oregon beat Michigan State. Those are my two, I mean, you know what, at the end of the year, when you have like 10 or 11 games on your belt, I can see where maybe a team that you beat is behind you.
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
2: But 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 this early in the season when only when you're like looking at four and two teams, four and one teams, five and one teams, you know, if you're looking at teams with identical records, then you have to put the team that beat the other team ahead of the other team yeah. that you
0: beat at N- this point yeah. of the season. Now Not to pat myself on the back or pat the website (laughs) on the back, but I will have to say that our latest uh, top 25 poll, which you used to be a member of, uh, we're holding it down. TCU is number 11 in our poll and Oklahoma is number 12 in our poll Oklahoma's right behind the team that they lost to tcu and in our poll oregon is number six and the highest ranked team that has a loss and michigan state is number eight auburn is sandwiched in between at number seven and alabama is number nine so uh if you look at the a lot of sports talk poll then we're doing right at least in terms of lisa horn's view of college football you
2: are you're getting mad props from me right now because that shows that you guys are actually paying attention
0: to what's going on. Sometimes I try to pay attention. Sometimes I'm <laughs> in bars on a Saturday night when people invite me out uh, to go to events and I can't see some of the college football. But uh, we do have things pretty much um, uh, in check in terms of knowing what's going on uh, in college football and the way we rank teams. Once again, uh, Lisa Horn of Pixie and national college football writer, joining us. So you're not really caught up in this Mississippi Mississippi State hype. how impressed are you with Mississippi or Mississippi State or are you not impressed yet with the Rebels uh, and the Bulldogs
2: I'm more impressed with Mississippi State because they beat LSU Texas A&M and Auburn because I think Auburn's a quality team okay I, I I've always thought that I thought that Auburn would be a better team this year than Alabama last year okay so so I think that it has really good quality wins and it's got a decent schedule, but I mean, I look at something like UT Martin, their homecoming game in November, yep. and Vanderbilt. So basically in November, two of the four games that it is playing are kind of like, eh. And, you know, when you look at other teams that are playing the meat of their schedule, it's to me that this is the one thing I don't like about the SEC is that fourth non-conference game. And I think when the college football playoff committee looks at it, They're not going to be too happy. I mean, you look at someone like Barry Alvarez, who's from the College Football Playoff Committee, and he says he's looking at the intent of the non-conference schedule. November, you should be playing all non-conference teams, or at least if you do play a non-conference scheduled team that is, like, from the Power Five. Like, USC plays Notre Dame a lot of times in November, okay? That's legit. But when you're playing an FCS school in November when everyone else is fighting it out to, to win their conference, To me, that's not very impressive. I think Mississippi State is a better team, and I love Doc Doc Prescott, the quarterback. Okay, he's on my Heisman list right now, but I'm not impressed with Ole Miss. I'm I'm not, and I don't understand the hype behind it. And uh, you know, granted they're they're undefeated, but really, when Boise State and Alabama and you know is is your signature wins, and Alabama doesn't look very up this year, to me, it's not enough of a
0: resume. Yeah. Do you think, speaking of Alabama, do you think Nick Saban has some sort of a point? Because he did snipe at the media. When when does Nick Saban not snipe at the media? But he did snipe at them about complaining about not necessarily beating Arkansas on the way Alabama teams of recent vintage Would beat an Arkansas team And he was happy that they just won the game Even though it was a one-point win Against the uh, Razorbacks Do you think Nick Saban has a point that Hey, you know, maybe we're not the same team As last year or two years ago But a win is a win, so give us credit Or do you mark Alabama down For beating uh, Arkansas by one Or West Virginia by ten And losing to Ole Miss
2: Well, I mean, if you look at Auburn played Arkansas And beat, beat them 45-21 to 21. Okay, and then fair enough. Texas A and M beat him thirty eight to twenty five. So I guess if you want to compare against other SEC teams, then Alabama clearly doesn't have the same resume as some of the other SEC teams. And I, I, I mean, I thought that way when they played West Virginia. I just I, this doesn't look like the same old Alabama. Nick Saban, it's amazing. You know what? The reason why he's making over six million dollars a year is because of media hype and everything else about how how great the program is in Alabama. And trust me, it is great. Okay, he deserves that salary. He's brought home a lot of crystal to Tuscaloosa. But you know what? When things turn around, it's 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 almost like it's almost like when you look at President Obama. He had the press in his pocket for a long time, and now all of a sudden things aren't going well. All of a sudden, he hates the press. That's the same thing you could say about Nick Saban. Right now, he well, he never really did like the press, but. <laughs> He's now looking at the media like a little bit more of, you know, they're not as friendly as they used to be because Alabama clearly does not look like, to me, a top-ten team. (laughs) And I don't think he has a – he can say what he wants, and I think the media for the most part in Tuscaloosa is going to just, you know, drool over whatever he says. I don't see a lot of people challenging him because, you know what, he's he's making a lot of money and he he wins. But – I, I don't know if necessarily him complaining about how they're not satisfied is legitimate. I mean, you know what? You, Alabama should be beating Arkansas by more than one point.
0: Once again, joined by Lisa Horn of pigskingrind.com. And I do want to transition to another head coach in the SEC, Mark Rick of uh, the University of Georgia. And... Uh, University that he used to work for as he was the uh, offensive coordinator at Florida State. Uh, Both Georgia and Florida State are in the news. uh, Some for the wrong reasons and obviously two of the marquee players in college football, um, are embroiled in, uh, controversy. Todd Gurley, the star running back of Georgia and Jameis Winston of Florida State. Uh, the latest controversy is the, uh, autographs, uh, that have surfaced of Gurley and Jameis Winston and the possibility that they were paid, uh, for their likeness and their autographs. Todd Gurley, uh, has been suspended indefinitely until Georgia gains all the details uh, of the situation. Florida State has not suspended Jameis Winston for uh, this incident, which, again, is still in the process of being investigated and figuring out all the details. Um... And obviously Jameis Winston has an investigation by the university about the uh, December 2012 uh, alleged sexual assault uh, incident. How do you respond to the way Georgia and Florida State are handling essentially the same exact situation with the autograph controversy of sitting out girly and playing Jameis Winston in a game against Notre Dame?
2: I think Georgia is handling it. Perfectly, and 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 the difference between Gurley and Winston is that there's actually, according to what I'm seeing and hearing, is that there's some videotape evidence, and there's actually an accusation that he's done this. With with Winston, there's there hasn't been an accusation against him possibly signing merchandise for for money. The 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 problem is is that there's a, 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 a authentication service that has a lot of merchandise signed by Winston in sequential numbers, which a lot of people would assume means that it was done at a private signing. Okay, there's a little bit of a difference. You've got one person accusing Gurley of doing something, and he's got videotape, and there's witness, and another one where someone said, hey, look, I'm looking at eBay, and, you know, Jameis Winston has a bunch of merchandise on there. There hasn't really been an accusation against Jameis Winston regarding that. The, the, The thing is, Florida State has a PR problem, and they're not making this any better by ignoring what to me are red flags. Jameis Winston has, I, I mean, as someone who is a victim of sexual assault, I'm appalled at the way the Tallahassee Police Department has handled this whole situation. The fact that they've waited this long to even go into the Title IX investigation, I think he's going to have some problems in the next couple of weeks determining whether or not he is guilty of any of the of violations of the, the the student conduct code that's at Florida State and to me it it just just looking at this from an outside view, it almost looks like Florida State saying to the world, Hey, you know what, unless you can prove something, we're just gonna ignore you. While Georgia is saying, Hey, you know what, we're taking this really seriously. And that may not be the message that Florida State is putting out there, but the optics are really bad. The optics are bad. I mean when he you know, when he admitted that he forgot to pay for some seafood at Publix, he they suspended him for two games, I guess I guess wisconsin in a baseball because it happened during the baseball season and you know he's a, he's a two-sport athlete that's pretty convenient um you know he he, he was on a podium or a table yelling sexual slurs and they suspended him for a half a game on that but i, I he's he's got a red flag i'm not real, i mean I, I voted for him last year he was number one of my heisman bell last year and a lot of people say oh you're a hater well you know what no he was number one on my ballot this year he's off And, you know, Gurley's off for a different reason. Gurley was suspended. He's off. Winston's off my ballot because, simply, he took merchandise from a store and did not pay for it. And I watched a videotape showing that. So I don't care whether he was convicted in the court or not in my own eyes. I've got evidence. So for both of them, they're off my ballot. And I think, personally, Georgia is doing a better job of controlling the situation and looking like they really are they want to do the right thing here.
0: How much do you put this at the foot of Jimbo Fisher with the way Florida State's handling all of this? And how much do you put it on the administrative level, university level?
2: That that's a good question. I I I haven't talked to Jimbo Fisher. I haven't talked to Mark Rick. I I can tell you this, I think Mark Rick over the last three or four years has had a lot of issues with players that have been arrested, unfortunately. And it's almost like he's used to this, which is really sad, where he's had a player that's going to be suspended. And I think, you know, there's that meme, you know, Mark has lost control. You see it on the Internet a lot, but I I don't think he has. I just think it's it's unfortunate that he's got a lot of players that fall into problems, but he's handling it the right way. As far as Jimbo Fisher, I, I read into his quotes, I look at his quotes and some of the things he says, and I don't know if it's him saying you know, defending Jameis, and he, he should defend his players, don't get me wrong, but it's almost ignorance, in my opinion. It's like, you know what, there's a, when you see this many problems going on with the player, it's a red flag. You need to step back and forget about the athletics for a second. I mean, you can look at this two different ways. You can say, you know what, you're right, the school needs to protect Jameis Winston's right that he's been accused by someone of sexual assault. On the other hand, what about the victim? Doesn't she have rights as well? And I don't see the school taking a proactive stance in protecting her rights. I see it all on the athletic side, and it bothers me a
0: little bit. Uh, you mentioned that Jameis Winston is off your Heisman ballot uh, because of the litany of incidents involving uh, Winston over the past couple of years. Is there any way that he, Jameis Winston, somehow plays, his, plays himself back on your ballot, or is he off and will stay off? No, he, he's off because he didn't pay for merchandise at a public okay.
2: supermarket and oh. there's videotape of it it's not like one of those things where you know he you know went into a diversion program or something i mean yeah. there's a videotape showing him walking out you know he walks in waves to everyone he walked out without paying and i i'm sorry how do you forget to pay for a bunch of crab legs and you know some other seafood in your arms when there's people <laughs> standing in line to pay for stuff yeah. i'm not buying it and you know what here's the thing that i, I don't think a lot of people understand in the in the court of law, you're right. You have to have evidence to convict something. On a Heisen ballot, it's a court of public opinion. Okay. You're not innocent until proven guilty. Yeah.
0: So, so he's off. Like he'll stay off.
2: He's off. He's off. Just like Period. Everett Golson last year was off. He was suspended. Yeah. He's, off. he's off. This year, Golson's back on because here's the thing. I think they all deserve a second chance. And if you commit a violation or do something that's really bad during that year, you're out. But if you come back the next year, hey, you know what? All's forgiven. This is a new year, a new start. You have another chance to, to prove that you belong on the ballot.
0: Once again, Lisa Horn joining us of pigskingrind.com, talking college football at the halfway point of the 2014 season. We've talked about Jameis Winston. You just mentioned Everett Golson. Uh Those two quarterbacks will share the same football field Saturday night, number five, Notre Dame, and number two, Florida State. Uh, my question to you about this game is, with Florida State, Having a rocky start to the season, almost lost to Oklahoma State. We'll get to the Big 12 a little bit uh, because Oklahoma State's playing much better than we thought they would be um, at the very beginning of the season. And then you have Notre Dame. Uh, They had a close call last week against uh, North Carolina, an even closer call a couple of weeks back against Stanford. Uh, With both of these teams' schedules not being so meaty, after this game, is it possible that the loser of this game – is out of the college football playoff discussion, and if the win and does the winner of this game have an inside track on being in the college football playoff as long as they don't lose? So it's just almost like an elimination game, kind of. Kind of, yeah. Because you know what? Because if if I'm Notre Dame, I mean, you know what? At the
2: beginning of the year, Notre Dame's schedule looked like the toughest in the country. But but let's face it, I mean, Michigan, ugh. North Carolina. Ugh. You know what I'm saying here, Addy? I mean, it's like, well, you know, I mean, that preseason, it looked like the number one schedule. Now, not so much. Florida State, on the hand, you know, it's got a couple of tough games, but for the most part, I I think it kind of skates through. Here's here's the the issue for Florida State. I don't think there's anyone good enough to beat the Seminoles. And if you start out and you're in the top two, does that mean you deserve that? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. Here's the problem. I mean, Just because you don't have someone on your schedule that is high enough quality to beat you, does that necessarily mean you're one of the top four teams deserving to go on to the college football playoff? That's a question, you know what, I would hate to be on the college football playoff committee. I will tell you this. You posed an interesting question. Is it an elimination game? I think it is for Notre Dame for sure because they don't play a conference championship. I think that's going to be huge, that 13th game. Florida State can still play in the conference championship. And I, you know, if you, if you look at this right now where we are, I think the SEC is down a little bit. So you got the winner of the SEC, the winner of the Pac 12, the winner of the ACC. Now, who's going to be that fourth team? Is it, is it going to be the winner of the Big Ten? I don't know. If it's anyone other than Michigan State, I don't think that, that they move on. Is it going to be the winner of the Big 12? Again, I don't know, Oklahoma State already, they don't have a conference championship game. Whoops, forget that, right? Yep. Then you have Notre Dame. They don't have a conference championship game. Either Either Notre Dame is in or they're out, but I'm just thinking, I think ACC teams have the advantage with that one extra conference championship game, Are you and I sh- think
0: that's yeah. going to be a difference. Well, if in the event the two remaining undefeated teams in conference play in the ACC meet in the ACC championship game, it would be a Florida State-Virginia ACC title <laughs> game. Because Virginia is the only other school in conference play in the ACC undefeated. Aren't you worried a little bit that the coastal division of the ACC isn't necessarily going to give Florida State uh, too many chances to boost that rating, even though it is an extra game? Oh, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I'm apologize. Uh, I'm just saying, Virginia's the only team in the other division where Florida State isn't in the Atlantic, the Coastal Division. They're undefeated in 4-2. Those are Virginia teams I think didn't win a conference, game last year. Georgia Tech was undefeated, then Duke beat them last week. Pittsburgh's two and one. Duke, I believe, is one and one and five and one in the um, overall. Duke might be the best team in the Coastal Division. North Carolina, you saw them allow fifty points to um, uh, Notre Dame. Virginia Tech ended up beating Ohio State and then falling off the wagon the next two weeks. So. Does that really help Florida State? No, no because
2: you know what? Here's the thing: Virginia's already got two losses against UCLA and BYU, which, by the way,
0: are the two yeah. best teams you know what? played that far. And, and they were impressive in those games. Or, or you say were. UCLA right. wasn't that good against Virginia, but it was an opening game, and Virginia played well. And they played well against BYU, but BYU, I think, had two special teams touchdowns. But they played well in those games, Virginia. And
2: you're right. And you have to give Virginia credit for. Scheduling some really good, like Barry Alvarez is going to be really impressed with the Cavaliers non-conference schedule because he looks at the, quote, intent of the non-conference schedule. Virginia clearly has a good intent here. However, I mean, if you look at Virginia, what's left, okay, Duke, that's, that, that could be a swing game. I mean, who knows? North Carolina, again, I don't know. North Carolina is like one week they look kind of good against Notre Dame and, you know, then they stink against East Carolina, right? Yep. Georgia Tech, I don't know. Florida State, mmm. And then Miami, Florida, depending on which floor, you know Miami, Florida team shows up, and then at VaTech, you know VaTech the one that beat Ohio State, or VaTech the, the one that I can't remember who they lost yeah, to.
0: Lost to um, so, uh, East Carolina, lost to Georgia Tech, and now just yeah. lost to Pittsburgh.
2: So the ACC is kind of a mess right now, and and I think well the you know the coastal's just completely up for grabs at this point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I think I think with two losses already to non-conference teams. I think that's going to be a problem for the Coastal, uh, even if, if Virginia wins the Coastal. Because a lot of times, you know, pundits look at your non-conference schedule, well, how are they doing against everyone outside their conference? And, you know, granted they were, they were close games, but they were still off this, and I think that's going to hurt. I, but I'll be honest with you, I, 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 think, I really think the Atlantic Division – is
0: going to be the one that, that well, goes on. Yeah, I think we're I think we're in agreement with that uh, in yeah. terms of whoever wins the Atlantic. And Clemson is probably the second best team in the league. And mm-hmm. of course, they had Florida State beat, and then you know they pulled off what they usually pull off, as they say, at Clemson. And uh, losing that game in uh, overtime when Winston was suspended for a half, and then was suspended for the whole game um, uh, a few days later after that. Uh, announcement. But the problem
2: is for the for the for the college football selection committee is seriously is like. Who who's going to get that fourth spot? Is it going to be mm-hmm. the ACC champ? Because if, if I, 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 I'm going to be honest with you, if Florida State beats Notre Dame, Florida State's in.
0: Yeah. Well, if Florida State loses Notre loses, Dame, yeah.
2: whoa! Yeah, what now happens we to got Florida a State?
0: They could be 11 and or 12 and one if they win the uh, uh, ACC championship, but have a loss to Notre Dame and probably go into the college football playoff selection after beating what Virginia, Georgia Tech, Duke. <laughs> What do you do with well, Florida it, State? Well, it's play? part of the
2: problem. Yeah, part of the State, Keep in mind, but they've already they've already dropped from number one to number two. Yeah. So voters aren't very impressed with Florida State. If you if you use your eyeballs, if you, do they pass the eyeball test? So far, no. Mm-hmm. I don't think Florida State looks like the same team it was last year.
0: Okay. Uh, speaking of teams that uh, don't look like the same team that they were last year, going to your bailiwick and your neck of the woods, the Pac-12, uh, UCLA uh, started with... A top 10 ranking with national championship aspirations. And uh, they have uh, fallen off the wagon a little bit. And it all started at the very beginning against Virginia. A win, but not an impressive win. Not an impressive win against Memphis as well. But they've lost uh, a couple of games uh, lost to Utah, lost to Oregon, which when you look back at it, losing to Utah and losing to Oregon <laughs> doesn't look that bad now. Uh, definitely Oregon, but now with Utah. Uh, USC as well, they've had an up and down campaign so far. And- And the talk was, is the Pac-12, how close are they to the SEC? Uh, But a couple of the teams in the Pac-12, namely Arizona and Utah, um, have done very well. Utah coming off an overtime win um, in Corvallis against uh, Oregon State. How much has the emergence of Arizona and the emergence of Utah made up for essentially the California schools not doing great? USC, UCLA, and Stanford.
2: I mean a lot, and that's a really you know what, and that's really a, a great observation by you. The Arizona schools, I mean, you know, Rich Rodriguez may be the coach of the year in the Pac twelve, but you know you have to look at Kyle Whittingham of Utah as well. I got to be honest with you. I mean, Utah went five and seven last year, and this year I thought, well, they're going to be okay. I've always i've said this from the beginning of the season. Utah continually puts out one of the best uh, front seven in the country and their defense, and, you know, they're, they're very good. But their special teams is phenomenal this year. And you know what? It's, it's like they're playing Beamer ball, right? They're mm-hmm. playing Beamer ball in Salt Lake City. UCLA, and that, this is a team that I am so disappointed in. I look at the elite talent on that team, and it's very disappointing. I, I mean, I, I've talked to, to Brett Honley, the quarterback personally, this kid is so likable. He's like Marcus Mariota, academic, uh, academia oriented, very smart. Um, you know, he's there to get his degree, and then whatever happens afterwards happens afterwards. I mean, sure, they both want to play in the NFL, but degree comes first. Smart kids, very polite, just a just a dream to interview. Very articulate and just wonderful. Both of them, wonderful kids. And I look at what's happened at Oregon and I look at what happened at UCLA, and I, I'm mystified that UCLA. Once again, I mean they're imploding right now. They're going up to Cal. They haven't won at, at, at Berkeley since 1998. Hmm. That's scary. Yeah. If I'm a UCLA fan right now, I'm nervous because they could legitimately lose three years in a row, uh, yeah. three, uh, three games in a row, and they're out. Now you're looking at I don't know, maybe Vegas Bowl, maybe. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> and, and but you're but you're right, Utah. Now, remember, a couple years ago, Utah almost won the South, but then I think, I can't remember what happened. They lost to Colorado. I can't remember who they lost to. This was a while ago. This was their first year in the Pac-12. They were making a lot of noise, and then the the very last game, they tanked it. It was an unusual situation. Good for Kyle Whittingham, because, you know, Utah is one of the few teams that has gone from a non-BCS conference into what we now call the Power Five and actually had decent success. Colorado hasn't, right? Nope. Texas A&M and, and Missouri have, but I think Missouri, the only reason why they have is because no one else in the SEC stepped up. But they've experienced real, uh, some decent success. And, and, and you know what? you got to give it to the coach. Mm-hmm.
0: And another school that was in a non- power five well at the time power six because the big geese was still considered that uh, a few (laughs) years ago Uh, another team that has done very well after being in a non-power conference tcu they could easily be six and oh and be a top five team they're still a top 12 team but they were in the mountain west had an undefeated season defeated wisconsin in the rose bowl um they they also defeated boise state i believe in the fiesta bowl one year when they were undefeated as well or had one loss so tcu and utah two teams that have had undefeated seasons won big time bowl games in non-power conferences now are in power conferences and after Taking their lumps the first couple of seasons, uh, they're really uh, paying off some dividends. So that's definitely something uh, that's very encouraging, those schools coming from non-power conferences doing well.
2: And you look at TCU and you wonder how much better this team would have been had they not lost the defensive end Devontae Fields. Yep. Because he was actually, I mean, he was Defensive Player of the Year last year. He is so outstanding, and, you know, I mean, he's got some issues, and, you know, he's no longer on the team. But Gary Patterson, that's the amazing thing about the TCU head, head coach. He, he, he just continually brings in these kids. And you know what? And, you know, come on. He's in Fort Worth, Texas. He should be getting a lot of good players. Yeah. But still, when you're in Texas,
0: TCU could be one of the the best team in Texas. The, the, that's, they, yeah. I, and that's impressive. <laughs> they could be, and they could have proved it, you know, if they had uh, yeah. gone against Baylor. I'm still of the theory that... Uh, TCU may still be the best team in Texas, even with that loss against Baylor. Now, I won't rank I TCU over Baylor, but um, I would still take TCU's defense over Baylor's I defense. agree with you completely. Uh, B- TCU's offense, at least going into last week, was, by yardage compared to last season and this season, the most improved offense in the country uh, in terms of most yards uh, gained from last season compared to this season per game. So, T- TCU can get right back on... The bump right back on the horse if they defeat Oklahoma State on Saturday at home, because TCU could have easily faced Oklahoma, faced Baylor, faced Oklahoma State in back-to-back-to-back weeks and won them all. And, and as I said, I would have had them won for. And that's oh, a that tough a, plate. <laughs> and that'll impress any poster. Yeah. That I would. Yeah, and the only thing with the Big 12 is they really don't have any marquee outside of the fact that they don't have a. Big twelve title game anymore, which I don't think is terrible, okay? But if if Kansas State had beaten an Auburn or if, if that happened and or if Oklahoma State had beaten a Florida state, they don't have a top twenty five win out of conference. The only two top twenty five wins for Big Twelve teams are in conference. TCU over Oklahoma and Baylor over TCU. So will the Big Twelve be hurt? Without a conference game, there could be two or three teams that finish eleven and one. Um, I, would, I would be hard pressed to think that none of those teams could make the playoff, even without. I know, conference and you know what? Game. And Addie,
2: I'm with you because you know what? I, I, well, I'm a huge fan of Bill Snyder. I love Kansas State. In fact, I thought Kansas State should have beat Auburn. I watched yeah, it. I'm I sure agree. you watch
0: it too. I agree. They,
2: they, that, that that was. You know, that was, wow. Uh, that there, was was, what, yeah.
0: there was, what, three missed field goals, an interception yeah. in the end zone? Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. I thought Kansas State looked like the better team. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, for Kansas State, it was a loss.
2: But Auburn skated out of there with a win. And, you know, I'd be patting my butt and buying some lotto tickets after that one. Oh, yeah. But, you know, Kansas State is a really good team. And I at the beginning of the season, I, I think you remember this, I said Kansas State's a sleeper. This You're is right. a really good team. And Kansas State can really make a lot of noise with its schedule because, remember, it, it plays at Oklahoma on the 18th, right? Yep, right. it's coming up. For tomorrow. And then it's got Texas homecoming. And then Oklahoma State at TCU. And then the last game of the year is Baylor. Yeah. Those are some really good teams. I don't care if they're ranked or not. Those are excellent teams. And you know what? I, I, Kansas State can make a lot of noise. Kansas State has to – if they can win all of those games – then they they put the big 12 in a really good position in my opinion to to, to go ahead and take that the fourth spot in 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 the college football playoff yeah, because but, I, I think that, I'm very impressed with the quality of the teams in the Big 12. Yeah. It's just that 13th game really
0: hurts. Yeah, I think, lack of it. I think a lot of people mentioned the uh, cannibalistic nature to the SEC West, how a lot of those teams could beat each other up. The same deal with the Pac-12 South and just in both Pac-12 divisions, where Oregon and Stanford uh, could beat each other up, and then UCLA and USC and Arizona State could beat each other up. You have Baylor... Oklahoma, TCU, and Oklahoma State, four teams that are ranked in the top 25 that could beat each other up and knock each other out as well without a title here's game. The, right, but here's, here's, here's
2: the why the public tends to get a little boiled over this whole matter is because when the SEC eats its young, the team that wins vaults up to, like, the number one spot. Meanwhile, in the rest of the leagues, like the Pac-12 and the Big 12, yeah when a team beats an undefeated, that team drops, like, you know, eight, nine, ten spots. <laughs> if you're an SEC team, you lose, like, four. I mean, look at Alabama. They're number seven. Really? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, there is there is some bias, and no, I'm not a whining Pac-12 fan or a West Coast fan. I, I, I'm speaking for a lot of people that are very upset over, the perception of the SEC on its reputation from previous years. Yes, yeah, the SEC had a great young, great run for seven years. However, the SEC went zero and two in their BCS bowls last year. The SEC is down, and yet the pollsters are continuing to give the conference teams that are undefeated um, an edge in the polling. And, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm just not real wild about that. I mean, Baylor is six and zero. Baylor is pretty impressive. Yeah. Granted, the defense sometimes looks a little asleep, but Baylor's impressive. Yes, And you know what? Florida State doesn't look really impressive, but it is and 6-0. But look at Mississippi State and Ole Miss are both 6-0. and Mississippi State has a decent schedule, a resume. Ole Miss does not have a resume. It does
0: not. And I know SEC fans are going to cry whatever, but no, Ole Miss doesn't. The image in my head now is when a conference eats its young. That is an awesome description, <laughs> all right, Of, of, it, it of does, those But it does. But you know what? The
2: Pac-12 does too. And you know what? So does the. You know all the. You know what? Go look at the Sun Belt. Well, I call the Sun Belt the Sun Belt. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Those teams eat its young. Every week, you know, it's Louisiana, Monroe, Louisiana, Lafayette. I mean, who, you know, Old Dominion, Dominion. you've got all, not Old Dominion, but you've got all these teams that are just, you know, it's like you don't know who's going to win, and the SEC can no longer claim that it's the toughest conference in the country, when you've got other teams that are doing the same thing it's doing, but yet the other conference teams are not suffering the same punishment, as the SEC and as the SEC fans, well, we beat you know you know three top ten teams. Yeah, but that's because the pollsters put them in the top ten.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, that's true. And, and that
2: doesn't
0: necessarily mean it's a top 10 team. Yes, uh, LSU, I think we are all in agreement. It's Hello. Not a top 10 team, even though right. they started uh, in the top 10. You're absolutely right. Speaking of the Sun Belt Conference, I do want to give a quick shout out uh, to Georgia Southern. I believe they're in the River. Sun Belt Conference. River. They're 5 and 2, 4 0 in the league. They're only two losses to NC State and Georgia Tech. By a combined five points. That's why the Sun have a high them. grade. They got a high, and they run the triple option. Okay. Will Fritz, <laughs> yeah. Willie Fritz has got to be a candidate for Coach of the Year. Oh.
2: Georgia Southern love the Eagles. I like, I, I, I love them. I,
0: I do. I'm good for you for mentioning yeah, them. And that's why you listen to this podcast and listen to Lisa Horn, because I can mention Georgia Southern, and she can take off from where I was going with my <laughs> points. Okay, but Georgia Southern's done great in the Sun Belt. Two questions really quickly. Uh, one, who's on the top of your Heisman ballot? Marcus Mariota. Marcus Mariota. And two, East Carolina or Marshall? East Carolina. East Carolina. And, and you know what? I want to go watch a football game
2: with all those East Carolina fans because they look like they're having such a, a great time, and I love Ruffin Ruff McNeil. I love the coach. I love everything about East Carolina. I love purple. And, yeah, I'm, I'm all in on East Carolina. Oh, but I'm going to tell you something for the SEC fans. Yes, Dak Prescott is still in my, you know, he's he's in there. Okay. I just I need to see a little bit more from him because I don't think that the passing is really polished at this point.
0: I agree. At the very least, I think I would need to see. He's number one in my ballot, but I but I will probably need to see him do that in a, a big road game or a couple of big road games. You know, Mariota can do that in road games. Right. Okay. But when mississippi state goes on the road because uh, all these wins are at home now they did beat lsu on the road but we just mentioned lsu yeah all yeah. what they were cracked up to be early on if he can do this on the road
2: then, then, you, then, you're, then you're talking about something you know that's a little different but marcus Mariota, i mean ike was number one on my belt last year he was hurt the last two games that's what took him out i know the guy i'm familiar with his work i know how impressive he is I think he's right now the most outstanding student-athlete in the country and he has integrity.
0: And hopefully the Jets, my Jets will go 1-15 in <laughs> and draft him first overall in the 2015 uh, NFL oh. draft. That's just my bias. Uh, and I'll be biased again. Uh, you are one of the best, if not the best, national college football writer that I've had a chance to talk to in my years of uh, covering college football. And it's been a few years and I've talked with a lot of college football uh, scribes and uh, pundits. Lisa Horn of Pickskingrind.com, National College Football Writer. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you so very much for knowing what's going on with Georgia Southern as well. Uh, thank <laughs> you so much for your time, and we will absolutely catch up with you down the road. Yeah. Absolutely. Quite honestly, who doesn't know about Georgia Southern University Eagles football? Uh, we thank Lisa Horn so very much for providing her always interesting take on college football and also uh, sharing with us that uh, she, a long time ago, was a... Uh, victim of sexual assault. That was the first time that she uh, let us know about that and let me know about that. So we can't thank Lisa Horn enough for her bravery and sharing uh, that piece of information about her life uh, and sharing that information uh, with us and with you, uh, the listeners. So uh, we thank Lisa Horn once again. We also thank Mark Gubaza for his take on the Kansas City Royals, both the 2014 edition and the 1985 edition. And it was great to really talk about that American league championship series in 1985, the, series against the Toronto Blue Jays a great series that kind of gets lost in the shuffle in terms of great series the Royals coming back from a 3-1 deficit against the Blue Jays and doing the same against the St. Louis Cardinals so again our thanks to Lisa Horn and our thanks uh, to Mark Gubiza so episode number 14 getting ready to wrap up episode number 15 is next week but stay tuned to a lot of sports talk and go to our website a com, where we will have Our latest installment of the Down and Distance podcast, talking about the NFL and previewing Week 7. Myself and Holly Culbertson are the co-hosts of the show, and that will be available Saturday night and going into your Sunday morning. So you can take a listen to that before the Sunday football games in the National Football League. And once again, you can contribute to a lot of sports talk. Please email us if there's a story idea that you think that we should explore. You can email us at feedback at a lot of sports talk.com. You can email me personally at Adishina at a lot of sports talk dot com. That's Adishina A D E S I N. A at a lot of sports So, episode 15 coming next week, there's NHL action. The NBA is getting ready to begin, and we will have an NBA preview and talk with uh, some players involved in the National Basketball Association and journalists involved in the NBA. The MLS playoffs are getting ready to go in a few weeks as well. Major League Soccer. So, we'll uh, try to have some coverage of Major League Soccer as well as they head into. To the playoffs. So there's a lot of action going on in the sports world and we will have coverage of that action for you on a lot of sports talk until then my name is Adashina Korki. thank you so very much for listening to episode number five, 14 excuse me episode 15 is next week I'm jumping the gun but you don't jump the gun and you stay tuned next week for episode number 15 thank you so very much for joining us and we will see you next week take care bye bye